0: Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Finland decides to join NATO, ending decades of neutrality.
1: This is a very significant and historical day to our country.
0: It will anger Russia, just hours after the UK pledged military support to Finland and Sweden were they to be attacked. So what happens next? The UK's defence secretary turns some of his fire away from President Putin and onto Russia's top brass over Ukraine.
2: Let's call out the absurdity of Russian generals resplendent in their manicured parade uniforms, weighed down by their gold braid and glistening medals. They are the ones inflicting needless suffering in the service of lowly gangsterism.
0: We'll investigate who those generals are and how much power they really have. Professor Michael Clark will explain why a tiny island in the Black Sea is one of the key battlegrounds for Ukraine right now. Also, this week, Mali on the brink again as European military involvement unravels. And we go training with commando gunners of the future as the regiment marks its 60th anniversary.
3: They need to move from here, find somewhere else that's safe. Get your- and that's the DS they're just explaining to them they need to start getting a move on.
0: NATO is about to get bigger. An extra 200,000 troops, another 800 miles of border with Russia. Finland's president has announced the country will apply for NATO membership. Technically, there are still hoops to jump through, but it seems certain to happen.
1: In parliament, um, as we speak, uh, foreign affairs committee is uh, preparing a report And probably during the weekend, uh, we will conclude um, that Finland should join NATO. And after that, probably next week, um, the government will be able to proceed with the application.
0: Alina Valtonen is an opposition MP in Finland and sits on the country's Foreign Affairs Committee.
1: We do feel a threat from Russia, and I don't think that threat uh, ever uh, went away entirely. Um, Finland uh, never took the step of diminishing its defense forces we have always taken security very seriously and I said um, we are very much focused on defending ourselves but of course we would like to do that together with our close uh, partners and, and ally- allies hopefully in the future it's just a natural step to, to take.
0: Russia had previously warned Finland and Sweden against joining NATO, saying it would have to rebalance the situation if they did. Finland is now in a potentially dangerous grey zone, not yet covered by NATO's Article 5 guarantee, and having angered Russia. That is why, a matter of hours before this announcement, Boris Johnson signed security partnerships promising military assistance to Sweden and Finland if needed.
2: Whether it's uh, in the event of a disaster or a military attack, what we're saying today is that upon request uh, from the other party, we would come to the other party's assistance. And it's vital uh, to state that, I think, now ever more important to state that now in the, the grim circumstances in which we find ourselves with the Russian attack on Ukraine.
0: Well, let's bring in Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark, also with us European defence expert Elizabeth Braw from the American Enterprise Institute. Michael, is the UK now effectively signed up to physically defend Finland if Russia responds militarily to this NATO application? Uh,
4: yes, it is. Britain entered into a good old-fashioned bilateral mutual defence pact very 19th century style yesterday. And in effect, what that means is that because uh, they won't get the article five guarantee, which really is all about the American nuclear deterrent. So insofar as the British nuclear deterrent may be relevant, well, they can have that on a bilateral basis. So it's, it's an act of, of reassurance really with Britain, as it were stepping in because America feels it can't. So Britain is doing what it can in this little interim period.
0: Elizabeth, how dangerous is this interim period, this grey zone period for Finland? What might rebalancing by Russia actually mean?
5: It is a dangerous period and we should remember that it applies to Sweden as well because Sweden is expected to say within the next few days that it's applying for NATO membership too. So then both countries enter into this interregnum where uh, they have cast a lot with NATO but don't yet have the protection that NATO offers. And that is always a really difficult period for any applicant Uh, but especially now for Sweden and Finland because it is so obvious that Russia is no longer a partner uh, of NATO. It it is an adversary and as a result Russia could be minded to to engage in some sort of aggression or provocation against Sweden and Finland. But what also makes this moment in time so unique is that Russia is clearly very occupied elsewhere and wouldn't be able to allocate a lot of military resources to uh, frightening or or harming Sweden and Finland uh, during this interregnum. So it is perhaps a less dangerous period than it would have been had they applied, say, in in, uh, May of last year. Michael Clark, I said
0: it seems effectively certain that Finland will join, how long will it take, how long will it be stuck in this grey zone?
4: Mm. I mean, as, as little time as possible, I think. The, the, effectively, Finland and I assume Sweden will ask to join at the Madrid summit, which is the 29th and 30th of June next month, and later will say immediately yes and go through an expedited process. And technically there is nothing to worry about because Sweden and Finland are already pretty well integrated into NATO procedures insofar as they, they um, operate in common exercises and so on. The issue, the delay, if you call it that, is because you've got to follow a constitutional process. And so all of the parliaments of the 30 members of NATO have got to agree it. And there might be a little bit of political horse trading to be done with some of the minor members who want to make a stand on certain issues uh, in order to get it through quickly. But I think the answer is a, a matter of, of some months, but as few months as Brussels can uh, engineer, I think.
0: When we talk about the risk, Elizabeth, um, during this interim period, do you think President Putin could decide to go for NATO as a whole with perhaps a, a cyber attack?
5: The, that would be possible. And in fact, right, Russia uh, stages cyber attacks against uh, selected countries uh, on a regular basis as has been doing so in Ukraine. Russia could certainly go for, uh, let's say, more vulnerable NATO member states. If if you choose to engage in aggression in the gray zone, you have huge opportunities because you can be unpredictable. It's hard for the other side to discern exactly what you have in mind. And it's also hard for the other side to decide what to do once you engage in that aggression. Michael Clark, we've talked about it before, but just remind us what
0: Finland brings to NATO in terms of military capability. Is it a significant boost to the alliance?
4: Yeah, certainly is. Um, I mean, partly it's its geographical location because through Finland, it's much, much easier to keep the Baltic safe. The three Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, are in a very exposed position. But with Finland and Sweden in the alliance, their position is far more um, tenable from a military point of view. And ultimately, I mean, the Finns have always maintained pretty sophisticated forces. They're not designed for expeditionary operations. They're all designed for their own territorial defense. But above all, if there's a single thing that the Finns bring to NATO, it is the fact that they're pretty serious about mobilization. When the Finns mobilize, they mean it. And they can mobilize an army of, I mean, there are only 5 million in the whole country, but they can mobilize an army of 200,000. That's huge in population, relative population terms. And believe me, those 200,000 know what they're doing.
0: Elizabeth, is this really good for NATO, or does it risk making
5: decision-making harder and more unwieldy as the alliance gets bigger? It's uh, so good for, getting, for NATO, I can't begin to tell you how good it is, <laughs> uh, because, uh, because as, as Michael said, uh, Sweden and Finland bring fantastic military capabilities, and of course they bring the undisputed commitment to their own defence, and commitment and skills, especially Finland, and uh, Lots of commentators have been saying over the past few weeks, oh, NATO would gain an 800-mile land border. That's terrible. Well, actually, what it does gain is a country with armed forces that know how to defend a long land border with Russia. What could be better? These skills are skills that that Finland can share with its to-be-fellow NATO member states. We should remember Finland Kept going with territorial defense when virtually every other country abandoned it and focused on, on, on uh, expeditionary warfare. Turns out the Finns were right, and as a result, they have they have skills, they have institutional memory, and they have the institutional setup and equipment setup to engage in territorial defense.
0: Elizabeth Bro, really good to speak to you. Thank you for your time today, Michael Clark. Stay with us. In Moscow this week, Russia put on its annual show of military might for Victory Day, albeit on a slightly reduced scale. Missiles were driven through Red Square, along with futuristic tanks, which aren't actually being used, and thousands of troops on parade. But there was no big announcement from President Putin on the war in Ukraine. No national mobilisation, no declaration of war or claim of victory yet.
4: Glory to our glorious armed forces, for Russia, for victory,
3: hooray.
0: Well, around at the same time, the UK's Defence Secretary gave a keynote speech to deliver a counter-narrative, attacking not just President Putin, but also Russia's top military officers.
2: The behaviour of the Russian General Staff has shown that their own self-preservation comes first. War crimes, targeting civilians, and the casualty rates in their own battalion tactical groups are all secondary concerns. The truth is that Russia's general staff are failing and they know it.
0: Unusually, a transcript of his whole speech was published online in Russian as well as English. Still with us is Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark. Michael, is the Defence Secretary making a very public attempt at a psychological operation?
4: Uh, yes, I think in two uh, ways. One is towards the backbenches of the, of the Conservative Party, mm-hmm. along with the Foreign Secretary, who are they competing with each other to see how, um, how assertive they can be. But there's something else in, in, in much more important here, that I think that, that Britain and America want to convince the rest of the world that Russia will emerge on the losing side. That's the point, because the rest of the world is holding off. They're not committing themselves yet, by and large. Um, and we're trying to convince them that you better get on side with who are the, the people who are going to win. And if you look at it, I mean, we, some of us keep a tally of these things. As of today, the Russians have lost, killed in action, 11 generals, 21 colonels, 44 lieutenant colonels, and four mm-hmm. Navy captains. That's in addition to one admiral, 21 generals, and at least 150 FSB officials who have been arrested. And I think that's what the Defence Secretary was really referring to, that Russia is in a real mess with this operation and that it cannot prevail. And so the winning side is going to be ultimately the Ukrainians backed by Britain and America.
6: That was the message.
0: So who are the generals that are running Russia's war in Ukraine? Military analyst and Russia historian Chris Bellamy has been telling me more about them.
6: Well, the commander on the ground is uh, Colonel General uh, Dudakov, who is known as the Butcher of Aleppo, and he wasn't on the parade. I I, I didn't think I could see him, so he's probably in theatre. Nominally, The defence minister, Sergei Shoigu, and he was on the parade, is in charge. But the interesting person who was missing was Valery Gerasimov, who is the chief of the general staff, which is equivalent to our chief of the defence staff. So he's actually in charge of all the armed forces. And he wasn't there. Now, it was reported that he'd gone to Izum but that he was wounded on the 27th of April uh, in, in a Ukrainian attack. So there are therefore three, possibly four reasons that he wasn't there. One was that he was unwell. He was apparently hit in the thigh by shrapnel. It may be that his campaign in Ukraine was so disastrous that he's been fired. Or it Mm. it could be both. The only other possibility, and this is just a remote possibility, is that he's um, defected. Mm. But uh, there has been absolutely no indication of that.
0: And from a Western perspective, Russian generals appear to be political as well as military figures. How much power do they actually wield?
6: Well, up to the top level, they they really are military men. It was Gerasimov who published in 2013 an article which set out the Russian playbook for the Ukraine campaign. Well, in that, he was completely wrong, and they've become drawn into this long war of, uh, essentially, attrition, uh, which was not the plan at all. So maybe that's why Putin's decided to get rid of him, but we don't know.
0: You mentioned earlier the idea that General Gerasimov may have defected. Clearly Ben Wallace, the Defence Secretary, wanted his speech to resonate with Russia's generals. Do you think they will pay any attention to his criticism of their leadership?
6: Possibly quietly to themselves, if, if they've heard what he said at all, of course. But at the moment, it doesn't look as if anybody is brave enough to do anything about it. It was reported that Gerasimov may have questioned Putin's threats to use nuclear weapons. And it, it was, it's was it been speculated. But again, this is all speculation that one of the reasons why he went up front to Izium was to tell the commanders in the field face-to-face about these threats to use nuclear weapons, because this isn't the sort of thing you discuss on the phone, particularly as uh, it seems that commanders using their mobile phones uh, become targets.
0: Russia historian and military analyst, Chris Bellamy. Well, let's dig into the latest developments in and around Ukraine. Michael Clark, Ukraine is fighting hard to take back a tiny piece of land in the Black Sea, Snake Island, 500 meters by 500 meters. Why is this rock so important?
4: It's important because the Russians hold it at the moment, um, but the Russians who are on Snake Island are way away from the rest of their forces, right out on a limb. And in the last few days, the Russians look as if they're trying to Install anti-aircraft defenses and seaborne missiles on the island but they are literally 180 miles away from sevastopol and so as they're trying to bring those supply ships in to set up an anti-aircraft system the ukrainians who are only 30 miles away have been attacking them and this is where the importance of the sinking of the moskva just a month ago comes into it because the moskva which is the russian flagship was it was a powerful anti-aircraft ship and with the moskva gone Ukraine is able to use all its Bay Raptor drones. And so the sky is full of Ukrainian drones hunting for these ships. They've already, we know, got two of them. They've got a Raptor patrol boat and a Cerner class uh, landing craft. The russians are certainly taking some losses in trying to get some air defense back onto snake island and the strategic importance is if russia wants to maintain this blockade of odessa effectively to landlock ukraine for the future then having a base on snake island will control the sea and air lanes around the approaches to odessa
0: so in, in that light it really is crucial to air and sea control
4: yes if the russians decide that snake island is to be their base then the ukrainians have got to do something about that if the russians give it up they could try to maintain air and sea control in different ways but given that they seem to have committed themselves to snake island foolish though they are because it's so hard to defend when it's so far away for them um but that's what they're doing they've committed themselves to it and so the ukrainians are actually attacking them pretty ferociously as they try to supply it
0: we're hearing reports of russia being pushed back from Kharkiv. how significant is that
4: very very it looks as if the russians have conducted a uh, strategic withdrawal from kharkiv they've got 22 battalion and uh, uh, tactical groups waiting in Belgorod over the border in russia and they're not committing them they, they they're using these i think as a tactical reserve and all the indications are that this russian offensive in the donbass which is based on Izium, pushing south from Izium, has run out of troops it's running out of momentum they're short of troops and it looks as if they're withdrawing from kharkiv and that the Belgorod BTGs will be being moved down to Izium at some point because the Russians have got to get this offensive moving again. And so as with Kiev, as with uh, Kharkiv and Chernihiv and Sumy, their battlefront is getting smaller and smaller because they realise what they can't do. And so it looks as if they're now going to withdraw from the Kharkiv area, give that up in effect Mm. so that they can move troops Uh, into the Isium region. We'll see that probably happen in the next week or so.
0: News, discussions and analysis.
7: This is ZITREP.
0: Next to Mali, where the Chief of Defence Staff, Admiral Sir Tony Radekin, has just visited the 300 British troops serving as UN peacekeepers. First, the Queen's Dragoon Guards are about to hand over command of the long-range reconnaissance group to one Royal Irish. But the Welsh cavalry are leaving a country which is in a much more precarious state than when they arrived. James Hurst explains.
2: The roots of Britain's presence in Mali lie back in 2013. That is when an Islamist insurgency threatened to take over the country. In response, France sent thousands of troops to push the militants back. The UK gave France logistic support and also joined a new EU training mission designed to build up Mali's own forces – and the united nations set up a peacekeeping mission much of that though seems to be unravelling right now france is withdrawing all of its two and a half thousand troops ending nearly a decade as the main military support to mali's government which has abandoned the military accords the future of the eu training mission for mali's own forces is in doubt part of it has been halted and germany has withdrawn now their problem is a military coup a year ago, and the subsequent decision of the country's new military leaders to turn to Russia instead of France for help. The UN peacekeeping mission, MINISMA, is in need of its mandate renewing, and the United Nations Secretary General has said that the circumstances really call not for a peacekeeping force, but for what he calls a strong force to enforce peace and fight terrorism. And that statement underlines just how precariously balanced Mali is right now.
0: James Hurst, well, journalist and Chatham House fellow Paul Mellie is an expert on the region. He spoke to me from neighbouring Senegal.
7: The situation is probably more fragile than it has been at any point in the last five or six years, really for two reasons. One, because objectively the security crisis is extremely severe and has been spreading out across an ever wider extent of the Sahel. It's not a Mali crisis anymore. It's a Sahel security crisis. But there's another factor, which is that the political relationship between the Malian government and the West broadly has collapsed, basically.
0: And what impact will the French withdrawal have on the fight against Islamist militants? Is the capability Russia is putting in enough to hold them back?
7: Well, the capability that the Russians have brought really has two strands. There's traditional Russian government-to-government military cooperation with Mali, and there's always been some of that. It's really at the level of arms supplies and some uh, political and technical advice. But there's also, much more controversially, the deployment of an estimated 1,000 men from the Russian security contractor Wagner, mercenaries, and Wagner has also been active in the Central African Republic where it has been openly accused by the United Nations of serious human rights abuses and the Wagner presence is the thing that's caused a real worry among both European governments, but also among Mali's West African neighbours.
0: And why did Mali give up on France and turn to Russia? Is it about that collapse you described of relations with the
7: West? Well, the Malian junta is very much pursuing a populist, very nationalist political stance, and to maximise support among people in Bamako, in the Malian capital, It has, uh, I think it's fair to say, actively sought to stir up the disputes with France. Of course, there've always been some disagreements and France is the old colonial power, but um, the Malian government has deliberately taken a sort of proactive line in accusing the French. Last uh, September, the prime minister accused France of, as he said it in his speech to the United Nations, abandoning Mali in mid-flight after the French had um, announced plans to reduce, but not pull out, reduce their military deployment in the Sahel.
0: And with France, it has plenty of military capability. It's had logistical support from the UK. Why hasn't it been able to take back control of Mali in nine years? Has it just not put enough in, do you think?
7: No, I I think we have to think quite practically about this. Mali is a vast country, and the whole of the northern half of the country is desert. We're probably talking two or 3,000 active troops covering an absolutely enormous area. And when you're trying to carry out um, operations against terrorist groups without alienating the civilian population, and therefore you're having to work in a cooperative manner, you're not using sort of scorched earth, ruthless tactics. It's very, very difficult. And uh, the Sahel is a region where economic life is very informalised. There are people moving around with their flocks. There are people trading. So in that context, identifying who are active uh, jihadists is, is very difficult. So the French have probably done as well as was possible to be achieved.
0: Of course, France has historic colonial ties with Mali. But what stake does the UK have in what happens there?
7: well the uk geographically is a european country and the western bulge of africa that is the region next door to europe so it's fundamentally in the uk's interest that uh, the sahel and west africa as a whole should be stable and should make development progress
0: Journalist and Chatham House fellow Paul Melly. Well, we finished this week in Plymouth, where the city is about to celebrate the 60th anniversary of 2 9 Commando. Hannah King has been finding out more about the history of the regiment and has been out training with some of the next generation of commando gunners. I'm crouching behind a
8: wall somewhere. On- A guy, Once they open fire, it doesn't take long for the trainees to realise what's happening. This is the preparatory course, the prelude to the 11 week training for those with ambitions to become commando gunners. Essentially, it's weeding out those who are not going to make it in the kindest possible way. Captain Paul Wilson is one of the directing staff, the DS's.
3: This area now has been compromised because the enemy's found them, Um, so they can no longer stay here. Uh, They need to move from here, find somewhere else that's safe uh, to continue then their their exercise operations. And that's that's the DS there just explaining to them they need to start getting a move on uh, to their ERV.
8: It was during the darkest days of the Cold War, when tensions between Moscow and Washington were most severe, that the regiment came into being. The commando role, previously shared by the Army and the Navy, passed to the Royal Marines after World War II. But without their own gunnery formation, by the late 1950s, the Corps were lacking firepower. They turned to the Army for help. In 1962, 2-9 Field Regiment Royal Artillery was chosen to re-roll and the commando gunners were born. Back on Dartmoor, the trainees have left the harbour and are heading for their safe location. They're tired and wet, but this morning's cereal isn't over. The course is intense, but for a good reason. Penn Hallerick and Cameron Thompson both want to become commando gunners.
3: Yeah, everything on the course is on there for a reason um, and none of it's easy at all. Um, but yeah, that's why we're on the pre-course because you, you learn the basics of it, you learn what it's going to be like on course and then you go on course and then you do it. Um, so that comes with um, things like doing um, section attacks, fire manoeuvres, um, wet-dry drills, Navigation and um, bottom field, all of that sort of stuff.
5: I wanted to do this course to um, make my mum proud, so that's that's just making my family proud. That's it. It's hard, but just get on with it. That's just the way with it.
3: You've got to you've got to weed out weaknesses in, in in people, and you've got to make sure that they're the right people, have the right mindset, have the right physical attributes, uh, are humble, um, you know, cheerful and face of adversity. That you know, one of the commando ethos is. Um, Uh, And and it's really important that you keep that strength of the green beret because if you lose that, then you lose its whole identity, you lose its whole purpose.
8: As the regiment prepare for their birthday celebrations this weekend, these wannabe commando
0: gunners move a little closer to their own dreams of the coveted green beret. Hannah King on Dartmoor. Uh, Michael, when we think of commandos, we generally think of Royal Marines rather than armies. So if it's not being a Marine that defines commando,
2: what is it?
4: Yeah, it's, um, it's being a raider. Um, I mean, commandos began with the Boers in the Boer War. They created the commando concept of, of a fast, light, agile, raiding groups. And when the British took it over, of course, those sort of groups for Britain are am- always amphibious raiding groups because that's what we do as a, a maritime nation. And it really goes back to, uh, you know, links into our, our Navy history. If you look at the great Naval commanders of the 19th century, people like Cochrane, the Seawolf, and Edward Pellow, and even Nelson, who, who actually wasn't very good at it. Um, but but actually it's landing troops ashore, uh, Marines ashore for raiding purposes. And so that's how how it's developed. During the second world war, Winston Churchill and Mountbatten were very, very keen on the commandos because they, they saw that when Britain couldn't do anything else during those uh, years of the early 1940s, at least they could raid the continent. At least they could remind Hitler that uh, Britain was still there and was capable of inflicting some damage. So that's what they are. Commandos are raiders. And in our case, they're maritime raiders because that's what we do.
0: Michael Clark, thank you so much for your time and my thanks to all of our guests. We're back with another BFBS SitRep next Thursday. Until then, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SitRep and you can catch up with past programmes on the website, bfbs.com slash sitrep. There you can also find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye.